0: You are listening to the Vineyard Nordic Podcast. We invite you to join us on the exciting journey of following Jesus and bringing the kingdom of God wherever we go. This episode was recorded at the Vineyard Nordic Summer Camp. Well, wow. I was thinking earlier today about John Carlos Ortiz, a South American Preacher from many, many years ago who taught us about the value of change and how we need to have our minds renewed. And just thinking about some of these things, hey, eh, it reminds us of that. And he said that, you know, what we need to do when we become Christians, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to take out our brains, wash them in detergent, scrub them, brush them, and put them back the other way. <laughs> we need to have a complete mind renewal because so often we've been caught up in the spirit of the age, in the spirit of our culture. A friend of mine's written a book about freed by God, but imprisoned by culture. And the culture might even just be the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age in which we find ourselves living. So it's no wonder when John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, came from the desert eating locusts and honey and, and declaring his message, his opening statement was, the kingdom of God has arrived. Repent. The opening response we can make to the announcement of the kingdom is to welcome the gift of change. So I want to just talk just for a couple of minutes tonight. And that'll be a miracle, but let's give it a go. A couple of, couple of minutes on the, the gift of change. What a wonderful gift it is. And what you are is not what you're always going to be. Tell your neighbor, what you are is not what you're always going to be. Just tell your neighbor that right now. And I'll tell your neighbor, I'm glad that that's true. <laughs> All right. And you know, insanity has been described as doing the same thing in the same way and expecting a different result. We, we need to be open for change. As I said, the seven last words of a dying church, I, we've never done that before. And uh, we, we need to be constantly open for change. I was thinking of Jesus in, in John 3, he talks about... Um, Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Remember in John 3, he talks about that. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up? Uh, And and that's a reference to what happened way back in in Numbers, and we see it recorded again in in Hezekiah's uh, renewal in Kings. And uh, what happened when they were grumbling in the desert, and uh, snakes were biting them, and they were dying, and it was a horrible time. God gave them a a, a way of escape. If they could look up at, at a symbol of hope, that God had arranged, that look of faith would heal them. Not the the snake on the pole, but their look of faith. And the strange thing was, in Hezekiah's reforms, many, many years later, I talk about one of the things he had to effect to bring reform was to to cut down the Asherah pole and the, the, the symbols of the past that had held them back from being open to the presence of God. They began to worship that symbol more than what the symbol represented. And I think that's what we've been saying here. We need to be, the vineyard has invited us to be continuously open to fresh manna, to fresh revelation. We can't, we can't build our future merely on the past. We, we, the past taught us to be open to the spirit. And God, God hasn't got laryngitis. He's still speaking today and he's still showing us things. and He wants us to, to say yes to that. And he's passionate for us to be transformed. Like I said, he's the divine romancer, and, and he's, the church is his bride, and the gift of his spirit, Paul describes as, as um, the deposit guaranteeing our future. The spirit is, is God's engagement ring. How many of you engaged, have been engaged? Hands up those who've been engaged, eh? And can you remember that day? I'm in the, Cape, in the forest outside Cape Town, and I got on my knees. How did you guys do it, eh? Got on my knees and, and I said to Colleen, "Would you marry me?" And there was that awkward moment, <laughs> and then she said yes. And I thought Shangri-La had arrived. You know, <laughs> this is it. And, uh, uh, and 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 that engagement ring that comes on the finger is a is a reminder that we are pledged to each other. And the Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring to you and me. He's the presence of the future and he's guaranteeing us a, a complete union with the Lord one day. And that's a, an amazing thing. In fact, his engagement to us was when he got on, got onto the cross. Remember that? And he says, this is how much I love you. And uh, would you marry me? Would you marry me? If so, just wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to send the ring. I'm going to send the ring. And and that happened on the Day of Atonement. That's when he he made the, the engagement offer. And 50 days later, and doesn't 50 in Scripture remind us of the Jubilee, which Jesus quoted in Luke 4 and said was fulfilled in his life. He says, this day, this Scripture about the Spirit of the Lord having come, this Scripture is fulfilled in my life in your presence. And so 50 days later, we have the Day of Pentecost when the ring was given and we became convinced that we are the people who live the presence of the future. We have tasted the powers of the age to come. We don't have the fullness yet. We've we've got an engagement going on. We don't have the full union yet. That's to come. That's to come. And God is passionate to see it come. When I was thinking about this today, I I remembered an incident that uh, happened when Colin and I were on a journey with our kids. We just had the two elder boys at that time, uh, and they were about uh, four and two, I think, they were close to that, and we're driving to Cape Town, this is about an eight-hour drive, so we stopped on the last mountain pass just before you come into Cape Town, just to get out, stretch our legs, and take a enjoyment of the view, and as we, we got out the car, Colin and I went and stood on the edge of the parking lot and just admired the view, Jason, our eldest, took his little brother Luke by the hand, and, and was holding him, taking him for a walk, and a baboon, there's a lot of baboons around. They jumped out and grabbed Luke. And I just heard Jason screaming, Daddy, Daddy, the baboons have got Luke. So I turned around. I saw this baboon had, had Luke, our second son, in his arms. And he was going down the mountain to whatever. He was going to be raised as a baboon or eaten for dinner. I wasn't sure. But something in this father's heart erupted that day. And somewhere in the mountains outside Cape Town, the baboons are still talking about it. Because I terrified the baboon with such a chase that he dropped the child and scattered him and all his buddies. I think God is mounting a rescue. And he's saying today, let the baboons let you go. You don't have to be captive to all that has held you up to now. I set you free. And... uh, I have a better destiny for you than baboon life. <laughs> yeah. I think it does speak to us of, about the, 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 the way we lead. I think God wants us to rediscover how to lead like fathers, not like kings. And that's not just in our churches, but in every place where we exercise leadership, whether in our homes, in our, in our businesses, uh, in society, in government to carry the heart of, of fathering far more than kingship. You know, a father delights in the success of his sons. And, and he, he, he wants his sons to take hold of all that he has um, and all that he carries and go beyond him in it. Whereas a king is threatened if his subjects become too successful. And there are many other analogies in that and I know those who want to can get the notes that we would have shared on a fuller message about healthy leadership. But this is the one aspect of healthy leadership I want to emphasize tonight. We've got to redefine how we lead. And I am so grateful, John and Ellie, for the the father heart that you guys carry. Father, mother heart. When I say father, I mean it generically, father, mother. The heart that you carry. You guys are shepherds of shepherds. And it is an absolute blessing to Colleen and I to be to be partnered with you under your care. And you have cared for us even this, these last two weeks with Caleb and his family in the States. And you guys set it all up, you've helped. And we, we honor you, hey? Eh? Let's give them a hand, these guys are amazing. Bless you guys, eh? Absolutely amazing. And that's why the last statements in the Old Testament Said this will be prophetically. This is what the Old Testament said in Malachi. This will be the impact of the the inbreak of the New Covenant, that He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers. It's a restoration of relational leadership, amen. Relational leadership. Uh, so there's a there's a man in the Bible who was Jesus's great 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 grandfather, by the name of David, and. Uh, he received a prophecy that he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And it wasn't just an idle prophecy. It was a prophecy shaped by some values that God saw in David's life. And it's important for us to regain some of that. Because if we study David's life, David was was a man born in some some level of troubled circumstance. Possibly because, uh, and we read that in the Psalms, which is his journaling of his soul, engagements, and uh, we read of David's struggle of, at a soul level of some of the things going on in his life. For example, in Psalm 22, verse 9, from birth I was cast upon, um, upon you, for my mother's, from my mother's womb you have been my God. From the very beginning, and in Psalm 71, verse 6, he says a similar thing, from birth I, I have relied upon you, you brought me forth for, uh, from my mother's womb. And and there are many scriptures where this is elaborated and and David repeats these kind of statements again and again. Do you remember the time when Saul had failed as king? Irrevocably, there was no way that this could be fixed. And Samuel was, was so incensed about this, he asked God, so who should be the replacement for Saul? And God led him to Jesse, this farmer in Israel who had seven hulk sons, like Nordic men. Always bigger. And they, these big boys were brought out in front of Samuel, and, uh, and, and he looked at them and said, it's not one of these, because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. Sorry, Nordic men. He looks at the heart. He's looking at the heart. Is, isn't there anyone else? And then Jesse remembered, yeah, we have. We've got the runt of the litter. We've got David. He's on the back of the farm looking after the sheep. We, we normally hide him away. And why was that? Why was David left out of the initial selection? Well, possibly, because if you open the scripture to these, these references, you'll see that David had two sisters whose names were Zeruiah and Abigail. But the scripture speaks of them having a father whose name was Nahash. The only way they could have been David's, uh, David's sisters was that they came from the, from the same mother, like Fleming and R Ar, are brothers from different mothers. David's sisters came from the same mother as David, but David had a different father. His name was Jesse. And uh, it's thought that Jesse had an affair with David's mother, and the result was this unplanned pregnancy. And so David was born... uh, from a, an unplanned pregnancy, born in, in, a you could say, from an adulterous relationship. And there was a, a measure of disdain in that and some shame in that. And so he was put on the back of the, the farm. And um, uh, while he was looking off the sheep, David underwent something very significant. He said, Lord, would you help me? Uh, he, he said... Uh, when my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord takes me up, Psalm 2710, hey, the Lord takes me up. He asked God to refather him as he, as he was uh, in this place. And he took his pain, his soul pain to the Lord. And I don't think there's a better way to be equipped for Christian ministry than to engage God on the wounds of your life. The places where we have been most wounded could be in fact the places of God's greatest preparation for our lives and for our ministries. Uh, and when we allow him to, to deal with us in our woundedness, uh, we overcome the propensities, the tendencies to, to lean into self-medicating, which is what we normally do when we have soul pain. We find some alleviation, some form of addiction, some form of distraction, uh, some form of illicit behavior, even under the sense of entitlement. And, and David actually had one of those moments because it was an ongoing journey for him. You remember when he was on top of the roof and he looked out and saw Bathsheba and he, he fell into an, an engagement with her um, and, and had sex with her and uh, um, the, the trauma of all that and when when that baby died and Nathan finally confronted David and, and in the analogy that Nathan gave him, uh, said you are the man, David owned that and we read his repentance in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David says... I discovered God. How you want truth in the inmost place. I don't think we can lead well if we don't love truth. I don't think we can live well. If we can't live free because truth sets us free. We need to rediscover the value of truth in our lives, and it's not a compartmentalized truth. It's a it's a truth that um, uh, impacts our entire lives. You know, in in the, uh, uh, what was it in. 1912, 15th of April, 1912, the Titanic sank. And it's an interesting story. James Cameron, who was the director of the movie, The Titanic, describes the Titanic as a metaphor of our lives. um, That we're all living, in some ways, on the Titanic. And when the Titanic set out in 1912, it was declared to be unsinkable because it was constructed using a new technology at the time, and the ship's hull was divided into 16 watertight compartments. Up to, up to four of these compartments would be damaged or even flooded, and still the ship was supposed to stay afloat. But unfortunately, it sank. On April 1912, at 2.20 a.m., 1,513 people drowned. But at that time, it was thought that, the five, that five of his watertight compartments had been ruptured beyond the four. In other words, five had been ruptured and uh, through the collision with the iceberg. But they discovered on the 1st of September, 1985, not so long ago, when the the wreck of the Titanic was found lying upright on the ocean floor, there was no sign of this long gash that they'd expected to rupture all four of these compartments. In fact, they discovered that the damage was affected only to one compartment. One compartment. But that damage affected everything else. Through the entire ship out of sync and out of balance. And many people make the titanic mistake today, compartmentalizing our lives and thinking, well, I'll be okay in every other area, but this area, I'm re- retaining that for my own selfish plans and soul, m- soul medication. Uh, and you know, we are reminded in Scripture that a life of integrity is not one that can be divided into compartments our entire life. And that's why David was chosen. You read Psalm 78. He was chosen to be uh, the leader of Israel by God himself because of his integrity of heart. And we read that in Psalm 51. How he said, God, I've discovered how you love truth in the inmost place. And and he wants us to, to, to figure out uh, what it is to love God with our total beings. And I walked around here tonight just enjoying the worship that is happening. And... And, and seeing so many of you just engaging with God, huh? I, bless, I bless the Lord for that. And he draws us to himself. Huh? It's not something we need to do for him. It's something that he, he does within us. And he, he wants us to understand that we don't have to be mastered by our sin. Sin will no longer be our master. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. There is not a single addiction that you cannot be delivered from. There's not a single destructive life activity that you cannot turn away from the kingdom of God has come. Repent, said John the Baptist. Jesus picked up the same message and began his earthly ministry, repeating what John said, and then went on to elaborate it. He is the Jubilee. He sets captives free. He brings us back to rest. No longer do we live in our addiction to performance and to the accolades of people. Uh, we've, we've been reminded that it's best for us just to be ourselves because every, everyone else has been called to do that and we don't want to live secondhand lives. God's called us to to be real, to to live without masks. And um, uh, just to say, uh, I won't go into the details of it, but some of you know the story, but my dad committed suicide while in the ministry. And one of the things I've grappled with in in asking the question why, uh, this is many years ago, why this happened? I I discovered in his journal how, because of a a, a bannerman wound that he'd carried, and I discovered it had been carried for three, four generations back. um, He had learned. He said he'd he'd longed for someone to ask him how he really was. No one ever did. He said. So he said I learned to wear a mask and long for death. And and uh, he on the very day he went missing. Uh, we, we looked at his appointment book and found people that he administered to, 10, ten different engagements that day, and we asked, how was he? And they said, he, it was amazing. He, he prayed with us, served us. How do you come back from effective 10 ministry encounters into a suicide evening? How does this happen? Well, I'll tell you what, it's the risk of pretense, of not being real. And when, when I... Kick the window of the car in to reach him that day. I remember the sense that God was saying, this is what you need to do in life, in ministry, in leading church. Have no patience with with that which should not have been. Be outspoken about the things that keep people captive. Break the window. He was locked in the back seat of a car. And, and I believe to this day, God is still calling us uh, to do life in more radical out there kind of ways. And David prayed, give me in Psalm 86, give me an undivided heart, Lord, an undivided heart that would be real with you, not pretending with you and being my ideal self here and my my real self there, but being completely transparent. And because of David's undivided heart, he was a man of courage. He could rise up and do courageous things. We see him coming as a youngster, age 17, against Goliath, good heavens. A giant that had kept the nation of Israel in frustration for 40 days. No one could do anything about this. This line, this giant of a man, and, and that uh, this lie that was being put forward that Goliath was going to um, destroy Israel. And and David, David took this on, and and in, as you know, the rest of that story, how he engaged with Goliath and brought him down. I often wonder why he went down to the stream and picked up five stones. Was he picking up four souvenirs or was he worried about Goliath's four brothers? I wasn't sure, but he he picked up five stones. And um, and when he let go with that sling and that stone flew out, you know know what Goliath said? Nothing like this has ever entered my mind before. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry. You shouldn't tell jokes in cross-cultural ministry. (laughs) never works (laughs) anyway i just love the courage of david another thing i love about him when he cut off goliath's head after he had fallen with his own sword he took that head like a trophy okay and he carried it the rest of the day but he has the besides the gruesomeness of that he has the inspirational factor he was saying guys i've opened the way i've opened the way you too can killer giant. You too can add your part to the victory. This is what we're saying at this conference. You too can add your part to the, the advance and the growth of all that the vineyard carries in the Nordics and around the globe. Eh? The call to missions is a strong and a good one. And it's wide open in opportunity. And sometimes we need some of you to come to our places and our places to come to you. And there needs to be this interaction because that's what John Wimber did. Well, in 82, he came to South Africa, went to the UK, took teams. I think he brought 80 people to South Africa and, and, um, and just did that. They just began to do healing on the streets and engaging with people. And, it's just a, and, and we're still doing that these days. It's a strategy and a, uh, a transparent way of just letting what we have in God be made available to others and the result is that we become a transformed people it's amazing and others around us are transformed do you know as i, I thought about that um, i remembered also some years later uh, i've been going through a challenging time i had some tensions and strains in, in in the church at the time in some leadership circles and i was working with us and god said to me i'm going to lift off your life an orphan spirit he spoke very strongly and prophetically to me i'm going to set you free from an orphan spirit and the very next day i was in tennessee and uh, i was having a meal with some friends and the lord said to me just come and walk with me alone by the river Uh, so i I got down to 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 the river and the tennessee river is a big big river um, and i thought the lord said put your hand in here and stop this river and of course i first looked around make sure nobody's watching uh, and then i put my hand in and the water didn't stop but it just kept flowing And I thought the Lord said to him in that moment, uh, just like there's nothing you could do to stop this river, so there's nothing you can do to stop me loving you. And a whole new take on the sovereignty of God opened up to me that day. And his love for me was his choice, not mine. He's chosen to love me. And then he said, there's nothing you can do to make me love you more, and there's nothing you could do to make me love you less. My love is not a performance reward. It's a gift I give you. And it was so securing, I began to pray that day, Lord, teach me to live from this base, from this foundation. And we sing songs about that, being based in his love and allowing his love to permeate every decision we make, setting us free from all our anxieties, um, fears of scarcity. And God began to do some amazing things in my life from that time. It was transformative for me. Funny thing about it, I found the people around me were much easier to get on with after that. Everybody else seemed to change. (laughs) It's amazing. I just realized as I reflected on it that God was very kind, very kind. And um, he brought a change in me that uh, opened life up. Um, I'm so grateful in the years that followed as he took me through a a journey of intentional transformation, intentional change over about a 12-year period from what I was to the life I've begun to live. It wasn't an overnight change, but the revelation was given in an instant. And the outworking of the implications of that was transforming my life. So here's what we land on. Here's what we land on. How do we how do we effect this change and make it our own? How do you and I become the people God wants us to be? If any man be in Christ is a new creation, Jesus Himself says, Behold, I make all things new. How can we become new? And how can we lead in new ways? How can we manage our lives in new ways? Well, here's here's a little recipe that'll help us to effect change. Just a simple recipe, in a certain sense, how we can become wounded warriors even and and use the wounds of history as growth opportunities for our future. And the first, I'm going to give you just four simple steps that'll help us, and I'll, I'll conclude with this. The first is to acknowledge that we need change. Uh, if you're joining any recovery group, they will, they will require you to break denial and to acknowledge that you need change. The acknowledgement of need, it's a very important first step. Uh, create a, a self-awareness that uh, causes you to be mask-free and vulnerable about the stuff in your life. Eh? And that's a gift when others help you to see that. The second thing that helps us in this transformation that we need to be uh, engaging with to become different people, to be embracing change, the challenge of change, is to ask God to actually refather us now. We, we acknowledge how we are broken, we acknowledge how we are distorted, how we're in bondage, we acknowledge our need. Then we ask him, would you re me, like David did on the back of the desert, hey? Would you refather me? And David in Psalm 23 is saying, as, as the Lord is my shepherd. And he's using a similar con- concept as the, 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 the Lord is my father. He's refathering me. He, and he says, three things I'm be- I've become sure of. Of his provision, I shall not want. Huh? I shall not want. He says, secondly, of his protection, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And the third thing, he becomes sure of his purpose. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Uh, David speaks of his, his revived confidence in the refathering of God. Many of us have had abusive fathers. We've had a- absent fathers uh, and, and, and mothers and, uh, or they've, they've damaged us by our permissiveness where they've not lived, loved us with boundaries because true love works with boundaries. And when you've been loved without boundaries, that's not real love. That permissiveness is destructive. And some of our cultures in the, in the humanism has, um, has encouraged us to dumb, dumb down the boundaries. And we're saying, but that's dumbing down the love. If we love God and we know he loves us, we'll welcome boundaries into our lives. And, and uh, David, in being re-fathered by God, discovered that, that fathers provide, fathers protect, fathers and mothers give us purpose and destiny. And we, he said yes to that. The, th- the third step that'll help us to to celebrate change in our lives is to engage in community, in, in transparent relationships. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And then, he says, and then the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. We need to be in fellowship cell groups, Places of belonging, churches that uh, invite us to be real. We don't have to masquerade or pretend. But being honest, being real, engaging with community, and especially at the times when we, when we don't feel we we are are worth being loved, and we don't, and shame is knocking on the door. Uh, but that's a wonderful thing in the vineyard. We we've understood that membership is by grace, leadership and and role modelling would come as a reward for faithful living. But membership is by grace. Every single skabanger on the earth should find a way to get into a vineyard church. I don't know what skabanger is in Swedish, or you got your own words for that. But every single rotten person, like we were, eh, should find the way into, in, because the gospel is proclaimed in the vineyard. Eh? It's in the church. Don't ask people to get cleaned up before they come in. Come in, come as you are, huh? Eh? just as you are, and the power of the gospel will, will inspire and enable change. If you come in as you are, you won't stay as you are. I love what you said this morning, Eleanor, quoting Jesus in John eight, neither do I condemn you, be free. You don't have to sin anymore. He, he, he gave her the inspiration to say yes to change. And it's always the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So we need to discover what it is to be based with a membership of grace, aspiring to say yes to the gift of change. So we need community. Find some safe friends. And Hebrews 10:25 says that when you do find these friends, be sure not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. And all the more, as you, as you see the day approaching, gather so that it might encourage one another, stirring one another up to love and good works. Uh, it's a a very destructive tendency to withdraw from fellowship just at the time when you actually need it the most. Often people think, oh no, I'm in such a rotten place, I won't be any good. But we need to be there. We need to be there, not just for, here's the thing, not just for what we're going to receive, but our very presence gives to others. And, And we want to break from a consumer mindset. We don't only, in most of our churches, we don't advertise who's preaching. In Fountain Vineyard right now we have 30 trainee preachers and we dare not advertise who's preaching. And it's amazing, Uh, people are loving it and people are still coming no matter who's preaching. Uh, All kinds of people are being trained and released to to take a risk and explore expounding God's word. And uh, we we found out that uh, we we gather not merely as consumers to receive but we come for each other. And we'll we'll see that in the vineyard again and again as we all are able to to offer encouragement, uh, prophetic words, prayer, support, love, care, one to another. So we need community. We need community because community is the oven in which change can be incubated. This is where it happens. And the the, the fourth and last step I wanna suggest to you that would help us with, with change is say yes to the call for heroism. Engage with a heroic lifestyle. Say yes to stepping out of the boat and walking on the water. To the challenges God gives you to apply n- new, new directions, new emphases, uh, new behavior in your life. Step out and do it. Uh, become a hero. In, in Daniel 11, Daniel sa- says that the people who know their God will be strong and do exploits. There's just something about knowing the love of God that secures us. I remember when when Colleen and I got married back in 1978, and as we drove across this desert area of South Africa, she's a farm girl, she's a daughter of a sheep farmer, and we drove from this sheep farming town uh, on our honeymoon. My overwhelming overwhelming thought, besides thinking about my brother, who was my best man, who'd rigged the car that the hooter could not go off. So I drove for two and a half hours with this hooter just blaring. (laughs) besides having some thoughts about my brother. But much more than that, the overwhelming sense of gratitude for a decision settled until death us do part. Okay? The permanence of a love-based relationship. And, and God wants us to have that same security. He wants us to have that same security. When we, when we said yes to his love, he frees us to become heroic in the way we live, the way we take on life. And it's been a wonderful thing, the adventure uh, with Colleen in, in, our, in our marriage. I remember we were in Methodism in those early years and, and going just a few weeks into our marriage to, to lead a, a large youth camp or something. And uh, hadn't, there was no place for us to sleep except under a tree. <laughs> so we rolled out our sleeping bags under a tree. And this woman heroically, heroically stayed married to me under the tree. Uh, but you see, love binds you together, and even if it's not a roof over your heads. but you're together, and it's until death you part. And by the way, murder is ruled out. We're talking about natural death. So we're talking about staying together for, the, for better or for worse, and making it work. And sometimes you've got to work at it. Eh? How many of you have ever had to work at your marriages? Eh? Hands up. Show me your hands. How many found that there's been some challenge in it? Eh? Here we go. And it requires heroic love. Heroic love. So, last scripture I want to give you. In 3 John, verse 2, John prays for his friend Gaius or Gavin. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. You know, God wants us to prosper um, and to prosper from the inside out. And as our soul does well, as we, as we say yes to healthy values and healthy relationships, our souls are secured and can live from rest without that drivenness of, of, of the addiction to performance and the fear of man. When we set free from that. Uh, and it's been wonderful if I observe in the vineyard how many people God has used that were broken specimens of humanity over the years. God has used us. Belucas. God has used us, uh, and somehow, he hasn't just used, he's used us in spite of our skills, he's used us because of our soul restoration. For myself, I know that the things he's done in my soul have been far more valuable in equipping me for ministry than the academic side, and when we say yes to a soul change, we become wounded healers for others, because we start to comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. And the, trend, the, the effect of that, as it translates into our every area of our lives, becomes a miracle. And I believe tonight, God wants to do some significant miracles. And Martin Luther King says to us in this context, "The ultimate measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of convenience but where they stand in moments of challenge, moments of great crisis and of controversy. I'm not inviting you. I'm not inviting you just to walk in the park because the walk may well be the Calvary walk because if anyone would come after Jesus, he says you will have to take up a cross and the, the purpose of a cross is that you might die. So when he invites you into his kingdom, he invites you to die, to die to self and to say yes, to a love that is transformed and a life that is transformed because you've discovered his love for you it's a transforming situation so it's a gift of change that comes on the back of the gospel for us tonight Amen You have been listening to the Vineyard Nordic podcast For more information please visit the Vineyard Nordic's website vineyardnordic.org.